This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this next Dispatches from the Home Garden, we visit an artist and home gardener cultivating ground in a neighborhood of North Seattle in Washington State. She starts and ends her days in the garden and in the company of some of her favorite friends, the plants, the worms, and the winged insects. There and with them, she finds relief, satisfaction, and joy. She joins us today via Skype from Seattle. We'll let her take it from here. My name is Emily Apple Wilkins. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I just turned 40 years old. The zones in Seattle seem to shift with whom you might be speaking to, but I believe we are right on the cusp of 7-8. It is considered a maritime climate, so we're not supposed to have incredibly harsh winters. Unfortunately, I would say this winter was very harsh. There was an early freeze, a deep freeze that went on for a longer period of time than we're normally used to here in the Seattle metropolitan area. Some people, of course, who live on the interior of Washington are much more accustomed to this cold weather. Mediterranean plants took a really big hit this year. My lavenders and rosemaries are quite dead. And I live just a little bit north of the city itself, Seattle has a downtown core and then a halo or a rainbow of cool, I would say, and that's my personal opinion, of unique little neighborhoods that ring around it to the north. And we live just on the top edge of this rainbow in a little neighborhood called Haller Lake. And how long have you been in this garden? I have been trying to get this garden into shape since 1998, I think. We bought the house early in the spring, um, sort of in a rush, slightly under under pressure to get a house, to get a garden in time to plant it for that very first year. Mm-hmm. Describe your garden the way you walk through it on any given day. We live in what I would call a pretty typical suburban neighborhood. So I address the house by the front gate and I do like it to smell good fragrance is a big deal. When I come home, I want it to look nice, but also having something that smells really great that makes you stop and sort of enjoy for a second that you actually made it home. The minute I come in the gate, I'm distracted usually by something going on, have a pretty nice border on the right-hand side. And so I pretty much veer over, start sort of veering over toward the right. And I do try to do something for each season. So right now, the viburnum is kind of getting ready to pop, and it's that really good Korean spice viburnum. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that opening in the next day or two. I love herbs, and so there's rosemary and the thyme and the oregano that are growing along there. And I'll usually pick a little something on the way and then finally realize that I need to get inside, I need to get put my bag down and get my glass of wine so I can get, come back outside and do some work. <laughs> How big is your garden, Emily? Oh, it's too big for me to take care of by myself, that's for sure. I really bit off a little bit more than I could chew. I would say the front is maybe like 30 by 30, and it's a square, your typical American square of lawn with a perimeter border garden uh, with some big shrubs that were here when we moved in. And I left 
almost all of them, even though they are not necessarily planted in uh, the most attractive uh, of designs. It's very typical Northwest, Pieris, Pieris, rhododendron, uh, Pieris, rhododendron. But because they're <laughs> mature, and I knew that I anything you buy at a garden center is so small, that I left these sort of awkward matrons because at least they had some history. And I've sort of planted things in and amongst them. And so bulbs, I love my little spring bulbs, uh, grape muscari, even though he doesn't smell very much, unfortunately. Um, that's the problem with some really cute plants is they don't have enough fragrance. I was thinking that about hellebores the other mm, day. If mm -hmm. only you could make hellebores really fragrant, you would, you'd have something there. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Back to getting into the garden. I usually do, uh, do a little evening tour when I come home from work. I'll go around the front and though there's a little raspberries and strawberries and things to check on. And then I'll usually head down the side of the house where it's, we have this very narrow side passage. And I've tried to give it sort of a even more enclosed feel uh, with some tall plants. We have uh, a couple of those box leaf azaras mm. and I even have a some bamboo in a pot trying to contain him. Um, and in there I have my, some of my worm bins and I, um, I'm really into vermicomposting. I'm really into worms, composting worms. And I usually will try to, well, I, I want to check on them, want to go and visit with them, especially if I've had a hard day at work. So you pass through it's and it's all, it's like a wooden deck that, um, my partner Steven built and it goes on, and it curves around and there's even some little steps. It's all like very custom to fit around this mid-century pokey, uh, poorly remodeled, but very dear, sweet uh, house that we live in. And you come into the back and it really opens up into a big lawn. Like you could have a swimming pool or a tennis court. Um, but instead we have native mosses and beneficial weed colonies in and amongst the turf grass that grows on its own uh, without a great deal of assistance from me. And all around the outside of this lawn is your classic American perimeter garden, which I've tried to fill up with cool and unusual, well, semi-unusual plants. But we have the standards. We have lilacs. I know that um, you, Jennifer, you and I both grew up uh, loving lilac, some clematis that grows through the lilacs as well. And that needs a serious hacking back right about this time of year. And and then it curves back. So it's just, it's like a big square of lawn. And I will, I'll sort of do a little track around the outside and then back up toward the house where there is a old, old apple tree that has gone very crab and very mossy. And uh, we have a little place where you can sit. And I usually will take a break there and leave my clippers or my wine there and not know where they are later. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your history with gardening and what early garden influences kind of raised you and encouraged you to incorporate gardening as a part of your everyday. I feel like I kind of grew up in the garden. Both of my parents were outdoorsy types. I think my mom considered the garden like 
a quasi daycare facility. Uh, and I would follow them and uh, absorb. And yet I feel I was encouraged from day one to make the outside world my world, which um, which I feel like is really, that's like the place I want to be. I definitely can't imagine working indoors. You know, I work at a garden center um, and I definitely feel like always I was trying to figure out how can I be outside? The kids staring out the window at school, like how can we get back outside? I feel like I've always, always been into gardening, even in, I think the only time I was not particularly gardening myself was when I was in boarding school because there are some rather serious barriers between gardening. Nowadays, I suppose there's more horticultural opportunities in boarding school, but it wasn't until I was in college that I was able to move into that group house, you know, in the sort of rundown neighborhood. And there in the back where everyone's parked their cars and there's like loads of interesting garbage up and down the alley, there was this huge, just like rambling, thorny, it's like a, it was like the vine that was protecting Sleeping Beauty. Hmm. And it, I could tell it was a, a really nice rose bush if somebody would maybe help it out a little bit. And so I attacked it that first year and it bloomed to everyone who lived around there kept telling me, I've never seen that rose bush do anything. I didn't even know that that horrible thorny thing was a rose. Mm. So I think from the, right there from the beginning, I like I wanted to take on the difficult cases. And uh, my love of pruning was definitely sparked with that with that old rambler and had a beautiful dark red bloom. Didn't have the greatest smell, unfortunately, but it rewarded me for my persistence and all the thorns. What do you do for a living? I have the pleasure, Jennifer, of working at a large retail nursery. I might have a advantage uh, in certain cases on what's going on with gardening here in Seattle. Because yes, because I work at a nursery and so I see everything that's available and I'm like intimately uh, knowledgeable about who's growing what and who does what, in my opinion, who's doing what the best. Um, Up until just recently, I was actually the edible buyer at the nursery. And so I had to, I was actually responsible for ordering all of the herbs and vegetables that we sell. And we sell the, it's called Sky Nursery. And it's pretty, it's pretty busy, I would say. We have a pretty good uh, clientele. Uh, But I've recently given over my management position to my dear assistant so that um, I could possibly spend more time on this poor garden that we live in right now. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. I learned something from every home gardener that shares their stories with me, and I always find I take notes on points that move me in their story. These windows into the heart of their garden and their own meaning to be found there. When Emily described keeping some of the mature old shrubs in her garden due to their history, these awkward maidens, I found myself nodding in understanding at her insight. 
We'll be right back after a break to hear more about this home gardener's garden story. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from home gardener Emily Wilkins in Seattle, Washington, as she shares anecdotes both universal and personal, such as her fondness for the individual personalities of her compost worms and her tendency to leave her coffee, wine, or clippers somewhere in the garden only to chance upon them later. Welcome back. So I want to come back to your evening rounds after a long day's work at Sky Nursery where you've been immersed in horticulture and the consumer nature of horticulture at this point in our lives. And you make the rounds and you visit with your worms. Describe vermiculture and what it is and how you became enamored of it. Well, when I started working at Sky Nursery, I noticed that we sold composting worms. And I thought that was quite interesting. That was the first time it had occurred to me that you would keep worms not in the ground, that you would have a separate box or bin, some sort of a worm a receptacle that they would live in and they that you would feed them and they would make you this amazingly rich compost, which I saw evidence of right there in the box at, at the nursery. And people would come in and buy them and we would scoop them out um, and we would put them in uh, little paper sacks and sell and sell the worms to people who were going to go home and build these composting worm bins. And there was a bucket in the break room at the nursery where people would put their banana peels and their apple cores. And that was what um, other employees, I saw them putting that in the worm bin to feed them. And I don't know exactly why I thought this was really cool. Um, And that was like one of the first things that I did when we moved into having a real house was I was like, I need a worm bin. We have to build a worm bin. And now I have quite a few, I have to admit. Um, And there's there's something about pets that eat garbage and then give you amazingly rich compost in return. I just feel like that is a relationship that should be encouraged. <laughs> um, Are these the same worms we find in the ground, Emily? That You do find them in the ground, the composting worm, red worm, dung worm. So it's not the same as the earthworm. So there's, they're a little smaller than the lumbrica group, than the earthworm. And the, the one I think the, the main difference is that the earthworm is quite nomadic. They, the lumbrica seem to like to move large distances and um, they don't seem to thrive in captivity. In fact, I have put them in worm bins time and time again from rescuing them from pavement or some such and I cannot find them. So they must leave quite quickly on their own accord if they can, whereas our little red wiggler worm is so happy to live in captivity He just stays wherever you put him. As long as you give him, her, plenty of food, they just sit there. They stay and they eat um, and they're very cooperative. Uh, And they breed prodigiously. And so that is why I have several worm bins that have to go around and check. And it's nice to have these, um, it's nice to have these little guys who will eat all the debris from the garden. And so there's 
sort of this little cycle where I will collect um, bad vegetable bits um, and take them to the nearest worm bin and bury them. And then it gives me an opportunity to check on the little girls and guys in there. I'm sure there are people who have birds and feel this way and other people are like what are you what are you crazy crazy bird lady and uh, so i am considered sort of i guess the unusual worm lady <laughs> at sky nursery the worm guru i've been called by some people i'm like okay that just doesn't sound good soil lady um yeah so this compost that is being given to you your reward for loving and visiting with and feeding your worms describe this worm compost and what you do with it mm, well i must say that worm castings vermi compost is definitely in my opinion superior to other composts because you don't need to use as much um and so and it's very light and it doesn't smell like anything really at all, except good. It smells a little bit like really good earth, like nice earth. And it's very easy to sprinkle around on the tops of plants. Uh, it's good for everybody. And I, it looks like coffee grounds a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I think it's very fine. And it looks like almost like little beads, like tiny little beads. I don't know. There's something about it. I've, I like the beach. I love the ocean. And there's something a little bit about combing your hands through the sand I get the same way sometimes when I'm like just sort of turning the compost pile. It's a very soothing physical activity of moving the compost in usually from one side of the bin to the other, kind of like to get and see what's going on down at the bottom. And I try not to mess with them too much, you know, mm-hmm. that I put the lid back on and try to continue on my way. Don't want to agitate them. People will ask sometimes, can I put these in my, my tumbler? And I, and I, discourage that because it just doesn't seem like a very nice way to spend your time if you're a worm being thrown around. Yeah, no. How much compost do you get from your worms and how often do you put it around your plants? And do you know how, because I've always understood it to be very concentrated, are you aware of what the actual nutritional value of it is and how how concentrated it is? Well, I've been in all these years, I've been making the little batches of worm compost. I have to confess, Jeff, I have never sent it away to be analyzed or anything like that. Okay. But I have, um, I have had the opportunity over just the last couple of months to visit some uh, professional, large-scale vermicompost facilities. Some of them very near uh, where I believe you live in Chico, California, which is definitely worm-growing country. It seems to me, and. Those people I spoke to have had their worm compost tested, and it it tests very it tests very well. I mean, like it's balanced. It's not excessively high in any of the major you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, or potassium, and it contains beneficial soil microbes and bacterias that are not present in any other type of compost. Mm. There's something in the worm that's um, in the worm gut that is exuded out when they pass the compost that is not is not present in other types of compost. I don't know if you can add too much. Because the worms, the, every time you feed them, they turn that into compost and you have to figure out how to get it out so that you can add more food because mm-hmm. that can be a problem is that the worm bin, the, you get up to the top to the lid and you can't get the lid back on because you've put so much stuff in. So... Usually I'll wait a little while until the volume drops down and I'll push 
I'll try to push, sort of scoop gently everything over to one side. And then the worms are, of course, very sensitive to light. They don't have eyes, but they feel through their whole little bodies. So they go down to the bottom to get away from the light. And then I'm able to scoop the finished worm-free compost off the top Mm. of the bin. You know, several big fat handfuls. Mm -hmm. And I'll put it in a receptacle, a bucket or a bag, just anything that I have nearby. And then I'll wait a little while and do it again, make another little hill, a little mountain. And uh, just wait like 15 minutes and the worms will go all down again. And then I'll take that, the top of the hill off again. And I do that probably, I try to do it like at least once every two to three months. Mm-hmm. And um, I just go and sprinkle it around wherever my next my next destination is. I have to admit, I probably should be keeping better track of where I've been sprinkling it. Um, but then I just sort of get rid of it as quickly as I can. Um, because there's going to be more. And people will ask me to give it to them. I have been, you know, like people will take it, of course. Yeah. it's You've never had trouble getting rid of worm compost. No. <laughs> you could probably sell it. You uh, People do sell it for a lot of money. I envy them, I have to say. I'm try- I think that might be my next thing. I'm going to try to figure out how to make my little worm passion into a business. Okay. Talk to me about your garden and your favorite time of day my favorite time of day in the garden. I like, even though it's very hard to get up early, there's something about early mornings that is, you can only, you can only experience early morning in the early morning. And if I'm able to get myself up, there's definitely something about being out right when everybody's, all the plants are waking up. But as you can probably tell, Jennifer, I have a little bit of a passion for bugs and small creatures. And that's one of the things that I've love the most is to go and watch all of the flying insects. And the late afternoon, evening is, I think, probably the best time for insect viewing. We have a nice stand of bronze fennel and lovage and asters that run along part of the front garden, one of the real straight bits. And it just turns into like Jetson City in the afternoons. There is just like buzzing and zooming, all the nice flat flower tops of the lovage uh, and the bronze fennel. They just, they're just little spaceports buzzing with all kinds of fun hoverflies and little wasps, some of them not so little, actually, some very large wasps sometimes. And I would say that that was my prime pleasure in gardening was watching beneficial insects. And especially if I get the pleasure of watching them eat non-beneficial insects. (laughs) Okay. Oh, that's great. In this garden, do you have life memories that um, you hold dear? Oh, that's true. All the things that we've done in the garden, they do have some of the best some of the best memories are of garden parties. When I graduated from college, we had a big get-together in the back garden, and there was badminton and lots of family members uh, and little children who got to meet you know, aunts and uncles and grandparents for the very first time. And I remember that very fondly. And another great front garden memory, because I've been focusing more on the front garden in the last few years, just because it's a little smaller, it's a little more manageable. Mm-hmm. 
and I actually set up table and chairs, nice table settings, silverware and uh, glasses. And when my mother came and visited, uh, she lives far away. And when she came, she actually was able to come up to Seattle and visit me here. And so we had a little garden oyster party in the front garden. And she, I, shuck, I shucked my own oysters for the first time. <laughs> I'm sure your mother was deeply moved and very proud. She, I think she had a very good time. A friend of mine brought fresh Dungeness crab. That's something that they catch around here. But yes, we went to the Pike Place Market. We got good, fresh seafood. Yes, and we had a nice, a good, lots of white wine and some good slurping. Finally, how, how does your garden reflect you as a person, Emily? Oh, my garden and me. Oh, Jennifer. <laughs> Sometimes I see my garden as, as, yes, as a reflection of myself that it has some very well thought out, focused areas. And then it also has some rather unkept, disheveled, disorganized areas that could use some reining in or some, some decluttering. <laughs> I've been trying to put a little more structure into these parts of the garden, instead of just planting every single cool flowering perennial I can find, trying to think about things like evergreens for winter interest so that it doesn't <laughs> look completely dead. I feel like that does kind of reflect my own style. I'm a Gemini. Sometimes I feel like my garden is a little bit of a, it's a contradiction, but it's a colorful and vibrant and fun contradiction. <laughs> I think gardening is really important uh, for everybody. And I see from my interactions at Sky Nursery, I see firsthand that gardening is, is very important to a myriad of different people with very different ideas about what a garden is and which plants are attractive, which plants resonate with them. One man's turnip is another man's treasure is for sure mm -hmm. in that world. Everybody is, is doing it because it's bringing them pleasure. Some sort of satisfying fulfillment is being acquired through being in touch with nature, mm. with living plants, whether it's bonsai or bamboo. It's definitely providing some kind of relief and also bringing something that is not attainable any other way. I definitely feel that way that there's no there's no substitute for actually getting your hands in the dirt. That's the best part. Thank you so much for being with us today, Emily. It's been a pleasure having you share your garden story. Oh, Jennifer, thank you so much for inviting me. Emily Wilkins is a loving, colorful, and vibrant home gardener, an artist, and an aspiring vermiculture farmer living in Seattle, Washington. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you value these conversations, take a few minutes and subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Rate and review the program. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about these things we love and which connect us. Thank you for listening. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.